0: The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Well, there was terrific excitement amongst my production team to learn the identity of our next guest because as far as they're concerned, he's in possibly the greatest movie ever made, which is Paddington 2. He's also been in... Downton Abbey and various other things in a storied career which he chronicles in playing under the piano from Downton to darkest Peru. Hugh Bonneville, thank you very much for being
1: with us. <laughs> thank you very much. I'm delighted your production team are uh, so keen on Paddington 2. Would you regard it as one of the greatest movies ever made? Well, I, re- I gather from uh, from the press uh, last year that it, was, uh, it somehow did get that uh, accolade Knocking something like Citizen Kane off the top perch for about a minute. Then someone did find a bad review in Milwaukee. Uh, so it wasn't on the top uh, slot for too long.
0: What was that? What do you think was so special about that movie, though?
1: I don't know, because it was a tough film to make. It was actually tougher to make than the first one um, in some ways. It's, a, it's a, such a technical uh, feat to achieve those films. And we had this amazing director, writer, Paul King, who is a proper visionary. And a real dog with a bone, a real terrier, and he he would never give up on a scene until he was satisfied and he We would even reshoot scenes uh, if not a week later, then several months later. Um, So he worried away at it, he pared it right down so there's never a missed beat. So I think his diligence and his vision and his tenacity has an awful lot to do with it, his resilience. um, And his great storytelling, I think it's as simple as that. And he had a team of people working with him, of course. And the animation is superb and uh, the plot is such fun. Hugh Grant's amazing. I don't know. There's so many things about it that that work and just hit the spot. And I have to say, I wasn't sure it was going to work at all. (laughs) You never know. Uh, And it really did... It seemed to hit the sweet spot.
0: You're one of Britain's busiest actors, but I hadn't been aware of the fact that you did a one-stage move with your family to L.A. for what was going to be a seven-series run of a (laughs) sitcom, which didn't quite work out for you.
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, Yes, in 2005, I I didn't even know what pilot season was or what pilots were, really. And I ended up getting a job on a, a, a sitcom, And we, I naively flew my wife and my three-year-old over to L.A. as we started to to film, except we didn't start to film. The day we landed in August 2005, they fired the writer-producer and we went on what they call hiatus. I didn't even know what hiatus meant. I thought it was a hernia. And and I certainly sort of felt like developing a hernia because we sat there for, I think, nearly three months while they rewrote the show. Meanwhile, I was hemorrhaging money, renting a house in uh, L.A., and uh, we, were, you know, we were meant to be there for a, a few months and then run home. But it, it just stretched and stretched. And it just got more and more painful. So I write about that a bit in the book, that it's not all plain sailing.
0: Far from it. And you're really interesting on the whole issue as well of not getting the parts that you might have wanted. And that maybe 9 out of 10 parts that you audition for or read for that you don't actually get. So what sort of level of insecurity does that leave you with?
1: Well, you do have to build a pretty thick skin you know, um, because you are dealing with rejection most of the time, a lot of the time. I am one of the luckiest actors I know and I've managed to keep working in the business for 35 years and the business isn't kind, doesn't owe you anything, it's up to you, you are the, you know, you're the chief executive, the widget, the marketing manager and everything else. You are the thing that uh, is, is being employed by others and so you have to have that resilience but at the same time you have to have a sense of vulnerability, of openness, to explore the the you know the range within the character that you're being asked to portray. Uh, I always quote Tootsie, um, the Dustin Hoffman film, um, to do with aud- auditions and rejection. You, you know, he's playing a uh, a Broadway, off Broadway actor who's a bit cantankerous, a bit you know difficult to work with, but he's not going to give up. And you see him at various auditions in these. Uh, uh, on the stage of various theatres in uh, on Broadway, and there's out in the stalls, there's a sort of shady figure you can't quite see, who's the director listening to the audition. And uh, he says, "Well, we we're, were looking for something." You know, the voice says, "We're looking for someone taller." And He says, well, I, "I can be taller. I can be taller." So well, no, we want someone shorter. Well, I, I can be shorter. And eventually, the director, you know, one of these directors, says, "We just want someone else." And it's that you know that's what you hear most of the time. And it's not actually a personal attack. It's just the chemistry isn't right, or you're not right for the role. But there's always a little needle that gets through the armor, and you go, "Why wasn't I good enough?" You know. But uh, and it doesn't get any easier. <laughs> I can tell you, I'm 58, and he's still getting. You know, it still hurts when you don't get the part.
0: I can't <laughs> imagine. And you've been cantankerous and difficult to deal with, or can you be?
1: Well, you ask my wife.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's at home. But what about on the set with directors, with our fellow actors? They'd never say that about you, would they? Uh,
1: I am a firm believer in having a good time at work and enjoying it and respecting the team and I've only worked with a couple of actors who I'm not going to you know, tar with the brush now but uh, you know, bringing, bringing a bad karma onto a set when you've got people who have been there since you know 6 or 7 in the morning and will be there until 8 or 9 or 10 at night working a downside like Harder than you the cosseted actor uh, are, are working. Uh, to treat them with any, anything other than respect I think is shameful and I've witnessed it a few times and it's not good and I won't work with those people again simple as that of
0: course you have remarkable security I presume from the nine years was it with Downton Abbey and the two movies
1: uh, yeah well I think we yes we got together in 20, 2010 so what's that yes 12 years on and off that we that we were together I wouldn't say security but certainly fun and uh and you know, we didn't know that the the show would roll into the thing that it became, this great juggernaut. Um, and we certainly never thought there'd be two movies in it. Um, and of course, we're all you know, we feel very blessed that uh, it did have the success that it did.
0: Why do you think it worked so well?
1: This is a million dollar question, and uh, we, none of us know the answer. But I think, I think really, I, I always go back to my first reading of the first script when before it had been cast. Uh, I read it, and I met these sort of dozen or so characters, all of whom leapt off the page and were vivid I- I immediately in their dialogue, the way they spoke. Often when you read a script, you can cover up the name of the, you know, the character and you don't know which one's speaking. They had their own voice. Each of them had their own voice. So you begin to cast them in your imagination, like when you read a novel. And I started to see these people. And and then, crucially, at the, on, on the last page of the script, I wanted to know what happened next. And I think that addictive quality is what translated to the screen. The number of people I've met over the years who said, you know, we bought the box set and we sat down to watch an episode and we were still watching it, you know, five hours later. Um, Because there's something for everyone in it. And I think that was one of the great appeals. Not only did it look beautiful and they really did put the money on the screen. But uh, it was well cast, and, and the variety and texture of all those different characters really captivated different generations for different reasons. It's one of those shows that people did watch as a family. Um, you know, I love Breaking Bad, for instance, but I'm not going to watch it with my granny, you know. Um, whereas I think generations got together to watch it, and so that had a, a, a warmth about it and uh, made it have a lasting appeal. You came to inhabit the character, Lord Grantham, but...
0: Did you ever at that stage, as you go through the seasons, when you take ownership of it, almost want to tell junior Fellows how you want the character to develop, that, you know, it's you, so you want certain things to be done?
1: <laughs> well, I did used to, I always, after about, I think it was about season three or four, when Lord Grantham seemed to start each season being incredibly thick. And um, I said, what's happened to his IQ? He's just, he can't, he's got no emotional connection with anyone. He doesn't seem to see what's going on in front of him. Like when Lady Mary was uh, widowed, he was, he couldn't see that she was in grieving. He said, don't worry, I'll make it come good by the end of the season. So most of the season I wanted to slap Lord Grantham. And then gradually there's something would happen that would turn your sympathies around and you think, actually, he's all right. Um, and uh, so I did talk to him a little bit about that from time to time, saying you can't make him so emotionally stunted. <laughs> He's regressing. <laughs> Do creators and writers and
0: directors who appreciate actors wanting to have a say in how their character should develop?
1: Oh no, I should think we're a right, pain in the neck. And if you've got you know, twelve or fourteen of us all saying, "I think my character should drive a sports car," or "My character should go to the Maldives," um, I think there must, you know, there must be a pain in the neck. But you know, there were a couple. There was one time in particular, and I think I, I mentioned this in the book about um, uh, a storyline I thought might be fun because I'd read that the. That uh, on the internet that the dogs or the dog uh, I, uh, Pharaoh uh, should in in theory or no ISIS should be um, should be about uh, fourteen by now and surely it wouldn't have you know this was stretching credibility so I said to Julian. Bearing in mind that so many British people prefer their animals to their own children, uh, why don't we kill the dog? Because that would be, you know, you get a lot of sympathy for that. So he developed the storyline of, uh, of the dog's demise. Um, and uh, th- so that was quite, quite fun to play.
0: Why did you turn to write the book? I mean, have you written previously to write in this book?
1: Uh, I've written uh, bad screenplays or screenplays that never got off the ground. And I hadn't written uh, anything like this before. And I suppose it really came from the fact that my father was beginning his uh, dementia journey, uh, so, uh, so to speak. And he died just before the uh, pandemic. But, oh, sorry dear. that. Uh, well, you know, um, he was 94. He'd had a fantastic uh, innings. But, um, but nevertheless, I had given him one of those sort of memory books... After my mother had died, and I said, "Dad, you know, would you just fill in?" It was it was one of these books that's pre-populated with chapter headings like "My First Job" or "What I Did at School," "What I Remember from Childhood," and all that. And he started to write it a bit for my son, really, and um, and he but he didn't really fill it fill it in because his his mind started to go a bit. And uh, I suppose as part of me thinking I want to get some of these tales down before my brain fogs and before they become such such hazy memories that I they won't be accurate anymore and uh, so I st- started to write and I started writing about my dad unconsciously this came up from my unconscious I didn't ex- anticipate it but writing about my dad and his influence on me and his character and and mum too and my brother who, who he was a keen amateur actor and so all these things started bubbling up and 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 so it really became I I suppose i was writing it ultimately for myself and my son and then I, I the more i wrote about the fun stories i thought well this really is for for a broader audience people who've you know been on uh been interested in the shows i've been in and perhaps they'd like to hear a bit more about life backstage and uh that it's not all uh you know cocktails cocktails and laughter would well,
0: you like making jokes in the book often at your own expense
1: <clears throat> well i think i think that's very important i think um you know, uh, I think it's very important to be able to laugh at yourself in, in an industry that is so bonkers. Your
0: mother seems to have be been a very interesting woman, although it seems that part of that interesting nature was hidden from you.
1: Well, yes, this was about uh, the fact that um, when I was about 10, she said, I'm going to go and take a, a job three days a week. So I started slamming doors and crying and saying, you selfish woman, how dare you leave me You know, when I come back from school? Why, why won't you be there? And um cut to, and and in the holiday times I'd accompany my dad who was a surgeon, uh, often I'd go on his rounds with him as he went to visit patients and sometimes we'd drop mum off at work in her office block in uh, South London uh, by Lambeth North Tube and uh, then cut forward, wind forward 20 years and she's retired now and I opened the evening paper one day and it says, and there's a picture of her office block and it said MI6 building to be sold and uh I couldn't believe. I rang mum and I said, you, "Century House." She said, "Yes, dear." And I said, "That's where you used to work." She said, "Yes, dear." I said, "MI6?" She said, "Yes, dear." And I said, "What did you do?" She said, "I can't tell you. I did some filing. That's all I did." And um, <laughs> presumably, I, it was
0: more than just a bit of filing. Well,
1: I then latterly, through a circuitous route, actually met someone she worked with uh, who had been a junior when she worked there, and this was it was rather touching because he said I was about eighteen when I joined, and your mum was, you know, sort of boss of our little department. And I said she. I said she said she did filing. And he said, "Well, yeah, you could say that. I mean, she was basically. We our department was in charge of collating all the intercepts and all the you know radio traffic and making sure that they were in the right order. If upstairs suddenly wanted to know what was happening in this country or that area, um, so it was yes, it was filing, but it was quite sensitive material. And she obviously never divulged anything.
0: Is this why?" you wanted, one of the parts that you did miss out on, which you write about in the book, uh, Slow Horses, the Gary Oldman <laughs> role, which, to be honest, having seen the way Gary Oldman plays it, I really can't imagine you as been this sort of drunken, dishevelled uh, MI6 boss parked off somewhere else.
1: Well, I know. I read <laughs> my uh, and uh, my agent, uh, who's, who's a, who th- threads through the book, I've been with her for something like 30 years, and she said, I've got this great script. Uh, I think you should read it, but it's, um, uh, you know, the casting director, Nina Gold, doesn't, doesn't think it's for you. And I said, well, why not? She said, no, I, I know it's for you. I know you can play this, Hugh. I said, well, describe, <laughs> describe it to me. And she said, well, he's, um, he's completely disheveled. He wafts his own farts around the office and nobody likes him. <laughs> I said, you think I can play that, do you? She said, yes, I've known you for 30 years, that's you. <laughs> so um, I did uh, I did dress down uh, dramatically for the uh, audition and Nina Gold looked at me as I came in looking like a tramp. Um, she looked at me a bit askance. And uh, at that stage, Gary wasn't doing the role. He'd, he'd been offered it and pulled out. And so I did this audition. And uh, I think it was, you know, it was fine. But then two days later, he, he, uh, he got in touch and said, actually, I will play it. So I was out of the picture.
0: And even though you're a successful actor, if you do miss out on a part like that, how do you deal with the disappointment?
1: Oh, well, um, it's, you sort of know. You have to get to know that you are completely indis- completely dispensable, I mean. Um, you know, there are other actors and I, I get somebody's cast off and, you know, vice versa. Funnily enough, I did a, a film with George Clooney called The Monuments Men. Which was a really enjoyable movie. Which was, a, you know, and it had an amazing cast and I couldn't believe it. And when the uh, my American agent sent me the script, the assistant had put a covering note on it saying... Uh, also attached to star are uh, George Clooney, uh, Bob Balaban, and um, uh, Jean Dujardin, and Matt Damon, and
0: uh, that's a stellar cast. Yeah,
1: and Gary Oldman. And so I read the script and I thought, hang on, I ha- the only other part that, that- actually Gary Oldman must have turned this one down. <laughs> They'd forgotten to take his name off, and so I got Gary Oldman's part. So yeah, it swings and roundabouts.
0: So what does the future hold for you?
1: Well, we, uh, we're hoping that there's going to be uh Paddington 3 next year, uh, so your production team will be very happy about that. It would be very um, happy. But uh, it, there's been some sort of uh, stops and starts on it. You know, often, often things like the pandemic can get in the way of filming, but there's been a few other sort of technical issues uh, along the way. But we, we, hopefully we'll get there for next summer, uh, to shoot next summer, and it'll be, I think it's being called Paddington in Peru, so that gives you a clue.
0: Well, the book, Playing Under the Piano, is from Daunton to Darkest Peru. Hugh Bolivar, it's been great having you with us. Thank you very much. Thanks, man. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.